0: Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. You know, welcome to the show, Kyle. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs>
1: so my name is Kyle Macht. Um I grew up uh, underneath an architect. In uh, my dad, uh, Paul Macht, he started Paul Macht Architects back in 1990. And then um, in 2015, we recreated it as Mocked Architecture, and him and I went in as partners. And so um, he focused on environmentally sensitive design. That was our tagline forever. And it was always about um, sustainability and really looking at how do we wrap this in exterior rigid insulation Back when they used to call it super insulated homes before passive house even existed, um, so that's what my dad started in, and all that was ingrained into me without me realizing it. And I knew I wanted to be an engineer, uh, not an architect. That's that was not my passion. That was not what I wanted. And it took until college that I started to realize, hey, how come my friend who's an architectural engineer has all these fun homework assignments drawing floor plans and things, and I'm learning thermodynamics like. I want to do that and so I ended up switching to architectural engineering and I I really wanted to understand the physics and the engineering behind how buildings worked before I went to design them and then so I got a bachelor's and a master's in that and then eventually went back to school for architecture and never finished. Um, So uh, my wife got a job as a professor up in Rhode Island so we moved from the Philadelphia area and then we were at the Penn State area uh, for 13 years and I worked for five of those years and then was back in school for architecture for a year and a half and then we, we moved out here. And so still need to finish that other degree. So technically, I guess I'm an architectural engineer I'm working as an architect, uh, similar to Mike Maynes, I guess. Um, but we, are, we do have a seal through my dad. So um, we are certified in multiple states and are licensed in multiple states uh, to do the work we're doing.
0: And I don't know uh, much about Rhode Island or what their um, licensure is, but you know the fact that you've a worked for an architect and you know worked for your dad for a certain number of years. Uh, um, a lot of the programs seem to want you to have uh, either a master's in architecture or a bachelor's of architecture. Um, but I wonder if, with your first degree being in architectural engineering, if there or if there's anything in the state of Rhode Island that would allow you to apply for licensure without. Uh, having to do that because I know you mentioned on modern Cressman that you know a couple of years ago when you joined your dad He was thinking maybe he was going to retire. I know Roger Williams has an architecture program um,
1: Yeah, so it's funny in Rhode Island a lot of the states as I've gone through school and worked and gone back to school and then worked again states have changed their requirements on who can get licensure um, so There are certain states and most of our work is in Pennsylvania and now in Rhode Island um, with some states between we've done plenty in New Jersey, um, some in New York, um, we're licensed in both of those. Um, and, and we've done work all over, but most of the work we've done is in Pennsylvania and now future is Rhode Island. Both of those states require you to have an architectural degree, certified architectural degree in order to get licensed. Um, many of the other states surrounding those states do not require that anymore, so I'm stuck in that. So I, there, there's many other states I could become licensed in because of my background and because of how long I've been working in the field of architecture, but not in those, not in the two states that most of our work is in. And what's kind of funny too. So in near Philadelphia, which is where most of our work is, is located and is where my dad is located and where the firm's been located since 1990, um, all of those locations, all the surrounding counties require a seal on every set of drawings. So uh, whether it's a small addition, renovation, a new house, they all need to be sealed by an architect and sometimes by a structural engineer depending on what you're doing. Um, in Center County, Pennsylvania and sort of the middle of nowhere Pennsylvania where I did the start of my career and everywhere I've had work in Rhode Island they don't require a seal, so I don't need it to get plans through documentation and submitted for a permit however if I were to seal it I need to go back to school to finish my degree in architecture to be able to get licensed so it's sort of a weird little thing they don't even need the seal but I need the seal if I'm going to seal it so it is sort of weird.
0: It is the same, um, you know. Here in Maine, is you know, I'm I'm licensed in Maine, so I can stamp drawings, but most of the places don't require it. Um, Some of them do. Some of them depends on what it is. Usually a lot more commercial, not as much residential. Half the time there isn't a code. (laughs) If there is a code, a lot of them um, are still working on adopting 2015. They've been on 2009 for a long time. Um, But, you know, as the architect, I'm responsible for all of these things. But we also don't have contractor licensure in in Maine and so you know a contractor can go in with a sketch on a napkin and get a building permit but you know as the architect you're held to this this higher standard. And I just submitted a project in Portland. And it's like, if you're a licensed professional, then you need to submit X, Y, Z, you know, and it was this, this long list. And I thought, you know, that's great. It's good. You know, we should all be able to submit this, but shouldn't we, if you're, shouldn't this say, if you're not a licensed professional, these are the things you need to kind of look up or know, or, you know, just change it to, you have to be a licensed professional to, (laughs) to submit certain things. But yeah, in Rhode I think- Island,
1: you only need a registration as a contractor. So I was actually a registered contractor for a couple of years when I first moved up here. I believe I still am, but I'm not paying the insurance anymore. So I'm not... Not
0: doing- actually building anything. <laughs> yeah. When
1: I first moved up here, I was sort of doing architecture half-time and construction half-time. Um, i always loved tools, always loved building. Um, my previous firm, I was doing design and construction. Um, so I was sort of managing the whole job from beginning to end and really enjoyed that methodology and now it's weird thinking about oh i want to know exactly how everything is going to be built in order to specify it but the contractor's not going to care all the time with exactly what we're specifying so you got to find that happy medium um, depending on the project some projects you do need to do all that some projects you've got a low budget for your your design and it is what it is and they've got a low budget for the build and you're trying to just make everything work and you just it, you know so you, you've got the the let's specify you know as much as we can for the budget we're on versus let's build the entire thing in the computer, you know every piece of trim, everything before we go into construction. Um, but it, yeah, in Rhode Island, all you need is a five hour training course, uh, a lot of times by Mike Curtin, who's popular in the Instagram community. Unfortunately, yeah. I didn't have him. I had some other guy who I kind of rolled my eyes to. but um, anyway, that's all I needed to do become a registered contractor in the state of Rhode Island in pennsylvania it's a little bit different but it it varies everywhere it's kind of it's kind of weird and you were talking a little bit about the codes and it's funny a lot of times maybe i shouldn't say this but i ignore the codes and i just don't pay attention to them because so many times we're designing way beyond them thinking about passive house or um, net zero energy ready or high performance or even living building challenge no we haven't done that yet but i would like to and so i'm trying to think about the Embodied carbon, all of these different things, and the code is so far behind our thought process that a lot of times I ignore <laughs> ignore it. And so many people know all the little ins and outs, and I, I I know enough that it gets us through the you know the permitting process. But we're thinking at a such deeper level most of the time that these little ins and outs I can rely on others to fill in the gaps. It's I always wanted to be the jack of all trades and know every little step, design it, build it know everything that goes into it. And there's so much to know. And the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. And it's just, I finally, now that I've been in this industry over 10 years, I've gotten to the point where it's like, okay, I'm not going to know everything. So I've got to specialize. And uh, it took a while to get there. And all throughout college, I was doing projects to design and construction, and I was wearing all hats. And so it's great that I I've worn all those hats before, but it's, it's not what I'm doing now. Now it's mostly the architecture and building science consulting as well for other architects or builders or clients.
0: Yeah. I think, um, you know, a lot of the history of architecture goes back to the architect knew all of these things and they were, you know, sort of this jack of all trade. And I think um, in some ways that's why people, you know, they ask you what you do and you're like oh I'm an architect and, and they're all like oh I wanted to go to architecture school and oh I wanted to do this or that and and so I think it still has this connotation behind it that you know you you know everything um, but like you over the last 10 years I figured out that there are some areas where I know enough to be dangerous and so it's better for me to partner with people who know so much more than I do but to understand enough of it and that's part of reason why I teach you know intro to building science like basic building science like let's let's all understand the science behind it so you know when you need to ask questions like you know when you don't know enough and um they sort of laugh at me because the people say oh well what if i did this what do i need here and my favorite thing to say is well it depends like depends on what you're doing and so um knowing that you need to evaluate the whole house as a system, you know, and look at everything. And now, you know, those of us in the building science community are really pushing carbon negative buildings. So, you know, there's a whole nother added level of complexity to to that information because I think the one question We get asked a lot and I usually kick it back to Building Science Mike and say, you know, people are like, well, you know, what is the embodied carbon of this material versus that material? And like, how do I how do I decide which one is is better than the other? And, you know, hopefully at some point there will be, you know, just this great chart. Like an if, then that kind of chart that you can work your way through, because some, some building materials might be, you know, uh, better environmentally, but then they're coming from so far away that you're offsetting it with transportation to, to get it to where you are. and So there's so many considerations, or, you know, you're in a certain area and you have moisture, or we have seven climate zones. Well, actually, eight climate zones. You know, in the United States, and you can't design the same way for each climate zone. But
1: that should be the perfect wall, right?
0: We always talk about the pretty good house, and you know, doing as much as you can. Um, with that standard and taking into account carbon offsetting and then you get somebody from California on and they're like, it never makes sense for us to do, you know, triple pane windows because Southern
1: California. Yeah. Southern California maybe.
0: Well well, and then I talked to Lance Psycho a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know, in Colorado they have climate zone three through eight. So you can't just be like in Colorado, this is what we do because it really depends on where you are in Colorado. I appreciate that some of the certification programs are trying to adapt to the fact that there are different climate zones and different ways that you would approach it and different things that you need to think about. I mean, in the Northeast, we don't think as much about dehumidification where in Texas, they have to think of like, that's a, that's a primary.
1: Funny conversation. Our our mechanical engineers is positive energy. So Christoph was on building science and beer. Him and I have become good friends um, over the past, year and a half two years now and so they've been doing the mechanical designs on our high-end jobs and so I'm always wondering like how much is his perception of the way mechanical systems should work based on his climate zone in Austin Texas where humidity is a huge concern I do agree that he's right it should be we should have a dehumidification system in all of our homes but when you're on a really tight budget it gets really tricky of where do you put the money you know do you have a really good mechanical system separate erv ducted system separate dedicated system separate dedicated system for dehumidification and then your heating and cooling loads yes that should be ideally how it's done but when you get to really low budgets it's like it's hard it's you know what what do you end up doing so
0: it's not as practical for you guys in Rhode Island as it might be for uh, the same project if you built it in Philadelphia. You know, I grew up in, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, so far outside of Philly. Mm-hmm. Their climate is, is different than it is here in Maine. Like here in Maine, we've got two weeks where it's really humid. I mean, maybe we have a couple of weeks in the summer. And then I go to visit my family and everything's still dead in Maine, nothing's blooming yet. And I go to Lancaster and I mean, it looks like June in, in Maine and it could be the very end of April. It's beautiful, things are growing, things are blooming, it's humid. We always joked as kids, Memorial Day weekend was when you opened the pool and you swam outside. And I look at Maine and I go, well, it's June. I'm wearing a sweatshirt. Uh, It's not warm enough to, to swim in an outdoor pool. Like it's just
1: Yeah, I saw you were dressed. It's getting up to 80 where we are right now today. I
0: think it might get a little bit warmer. I have to admit that I moved my office to the lower level of our house. It's a walkout on the backside. So I'm technically in the basement and we have a heat pump, hot water heater in the utility room right next to me. So it's keeping it pretty cool uh, down here.
1: We have the the Ream Prestige and it keeps it pretty cool down there.
0: Yeah. So, so I'm wearing a sweatshirt. If I opened this door, it's probably warmer outside, but uh, it it's a little cool in, in the office right now. I also so. too,
1: we designed based on the specific climate data that was history. And with mm-hmm. climate change, we're already seeing massive change in terms of warming throughout this. And I wonder how long it would take to get the climate map, the climate zone map to all shift a climate zone or Shift completely differently based on climate change. And we're designing for these structures based on um, risk. Um, I'm thinking of Building Science by Club and Christine and her thought on risk. And I'm I often thinking about risk associated with what if climate change changes this climate to something slightly different? What if Rhode Island's climate zone is a little bit more like Philadelphia's? Is that a problem? So. On every project that we've had, I've, I've thought a little bit about that every time we were selecting the envelope and, and systems just to make sure we're future proofing of what if things do change to a different level. Um, you know, if it's more, if it's not as heating dominated and we're designing for out without air conditioning, which we typically haven't done because most of the places we've been at, um, air conditioning is needed. But it, it's interesting, air conditioning might be required in, in places in the future where not required, but desired, um, where right now it might not be. So it's an interesting thought process of, you know, where they're designing in Texas for all over the place with our mechanical engineers, but also how is climate going to change throughout future uh, generations. And we're trying to design projects that are lasting one to two, 300 years um, or longer, hopefully. Um, But it's, it's an interesting thought to have
0: it is an interesting thought especially i don't know where exactly in rhode island you are or how close you are to the coast but i'm reading this book called earth calling oh by ted carter and you know he talks about how you know they designed a lot of systems for with historic data that then didn't work as climate change gets worse and you know the tsunamis are worse the hurricanes are worse the tornadoes are worse the fires are worse the you know the Humidity is coming up. I mean would someone say I don't know how many years it is before um, They say that in Maine, it'll be like Virginia like climate change is just you know moving it all through. and so they They created these these systems to safeguard a lot of the coastal areas based on historic data that we we just don't have anymore, you know. The historic data is basically not accurate for for yeah. what we're seeing. So I totally agree with
1: projections. And we've got three yeah. projects that are either on the coast or right near the coast, and so it's it's something that I'm thinking about quite seriously in terms of, you know, how much we need to be aware of salt water driven into the side of the building. The the one project I have on the coast of uh, Rhode Island, it's the whole building it's a hundred year old building that's falling apart because of the climatic conditions not because it's in rhode island but because it's at the ocean and so it's right. mostly air and wind that are driving salt water through this house and destroying it and so that's it's all been about water and what's interesting is the client's a sailor or was a sailor so he's totally into that thought processes which is why Actually, they contacted Mike Maines, and Mike Mainz sent them my way. Um, but that's been a, an interesting project, um, sort of a deep energy retrofit, thinking about durability first more than anything.
0: I think, um, as building science gets better, we as architects uh, need to start paying attention to, well, we we always should have been, and Christine and I have talked about this on the podcast, um, where there's something in the architectural world where we're, we're afraid to ask questions or, or afraid, you know, and so we haven't considered building durability as the most important proponent, and I can't remember if it uh, who it was on in the Instagram community, who's like, you know, sometimes we get plans from architects and it's like they haven't considered the water management of, of the building. And when you talk and you listen to the building science community, that's the first thing that we say. It's like water is the most critical thing. Like you need to know uh, where the water's going so you can plan for it and how it's moving through your structure, whether you're keeping your structure dry or whether you're drying out your structure or whatever is happening. Uh, I have to admit
1: some i'm not guilty of ignoring water, but I am guilty of creating designs that aren 't the best option for water so we've <laughs> done quite a lot of modern projects recently um, and it is I, I enjoy it the most um, but flat roofs and you know some sides have huge overhangs, and some sides don't and it's more of an architectural feature and expression that we're trying to create but you know, the, the one window is gonna be a lot more susceptible to water damage. Now we're treating all of them as, you know, the, the best possible practices for window installation. So am I concerned about it? Not really, but theoretically, the ones that are underneath the six foot overhang, we could probably not worry as much about some of those details like we are on the other side. And if we had the six foot overhang the whole way around, um, that would be a whole other case. I was just brought as as a building consultant on another project, um, and they didn't do the best job of um, their water management strategy. Basically siding directly up against zip sheeting without any type of drainage cavity behind that, um, including fiber cement panels directly up against that with caulk seams. Um, so they had premature paint failure with before the project was even finished in terms of construction. So. Um, I was brought in and to take a look at it and it's like, well, I we don't have a drainage cavity. What's a drainage cavity. Well, let's talk about that. And so, you know, similar to what Christine was talking about on her podcast is do I play the, I am knowledgeable. I am smart. Listen to me roar. Or do I just try to educate? And I usually go the education route. Sometimes it goes right over them or eyes glaze over or I have to really simplify it. And sometimes that works. And sometimes they just really don't care. They just want me to tell them what to do. And so, yeah, sort of or they just want me to tell them what to do they said they can ignore me and go do something else um which is <laughs> my least favorite but um but with that project it was just all right so you need to rip off all of this but the so the the reason i started this was the the really cool thing about it is the architectural design had four foot overhangs around the entire perimeter of the building and then it had a step back and then another set of four foot perimeter overhangs so almost all of the conditions where this is going to be a huge problem were protected and the only areas that they were experiencing problems was when it was a two-story height and the four-foot overhang was only protecting the area up top. And so you saw the failure at the bottom part that was exposed to the weather. So that was the only part that they have to fix. Should they fix everything? Yeah. Is it going to happen? Probably not. Um, does it need to happen? Probably not. So it's yeah. it's interesting. but.
0: Steve Basic talks about that a lot. Um, I don't know if it's on Instagram, the podcast, on the Build Show Network. Steve's kind of everywhere these days, Um, but he talks about that and how, you know, architecturally, we want to have buildings that look different, are different, have modern features and detailing. And so you say you ignore water, but you're not really ignoring water. You're actually thinking about those details, which become critically more important when you don't have the extra, you know, CYA. You don't have an overhang. You don't have something over the door. You have a two-story area and you're saying, okay, well.
1: I'm adding more money than is maybe needed at what, well, I'm adding more money because of the architectural design to manage water.
0: Right. And so, and unfortunately, I think that there are people who are designing modern structures, as you said, when you came in on a consulting project that didn't, really consider that. And as building science gets better and things change and we're building somewhat differently we can't do you know it was probably fine to nail the wood siding directly to the side of the house when there was no insulation in the cavity and the thing leaked like a sieve and everything dried and that's part of the reason why we have buildings from the 1800s that are still standing and they're perfectly fine but then somebody comes in does a deep energy wow, retrofit everything. but you know and we cut down on air leakage now we have to think about you know vapor drive and water management and not getting that wet and oh man if the cellulose gets wet it holds 130 percent of its weight in water but it also Mm -hmm. is really good for vapor diffusion so if you have a double stud wall it's able to actually pull you know pull moisture and wick it throughout the whole wall system and so it's like there are so many goods so many bads and and like you said it's just a requirement of thinking like okay if i'm gonna do this detail what's gonna happen because the the water is now going to get it's going to get on my building it's going to get behind my siding it's going to get on my window so like what's my flashing detail what's my rain screen detail what you know what's my window what, yeah what's my window what what do I have here and so um and, and funny when you said earlier that you ignore code and it's not even so much that you ignore code you just know that you're building something that's so much more mm-hmm. thought through that You almost don't have to. I've got to
1: adhere to 2009 RRC or adjusted 2009 RRC or 2015. It's just like carrying let's let's build a good building right
0: and when you as a architectural engineer you're you're familiar with the structure you know how it's working you're you're doing all of the structural requirements for that you've been a builder so you know some things that are easier to do on site or better to do on site and then your building science level is so far above the IECC that you know why even bother breaking the book out too. In similar case, I, I feel the same way. We do the same things, but then I'll occasionally get a question or I'll we'll have somebody who who's building a house and they want to do just a little bit better than code. Like you said, lower budget for design, lower budget for construction. You have to go back and say, okay, well, I want to do this plus this and, and all of that. And do, does that, how do how I meet code a little bit better? And um, in the state of Maine, Technically, I don't think that they've adopted the IECC 2015 yet. So 2009 still allowed you to do visual inspections of the air barrier, which is totally bogus. Mm-hmm. I don't exactly know what that is anyway. Um, but so if they do adopt the 2015, it because they skipped 2012, they're going to have to go from visual inspection or seven to three and blower door testing. So jumping from nothing to three could be could be a big struggle, uh, and it'll be interesting to see where the market goes. I've
1: done a bunch of visual inspections. So I was a hers Raider um, before I, all of this, but started out in the consulting side of things for the first two years at the firm that I was at previously. Um, and so I was doing a lot of energy audits, uh, a lot of commercial energy audits, looking mostly at the envelope and a little bit of mechanical systems, a lot of energy modeling, things like that it's kind of funny a lot of my energy modeling was done back in central pennsylvania with um electricity costing eight cents a kilowatt hour um oil was 350 at the time and natural gas was like a dollar a term and so it's like my perception of what reality was is way different than what it is in rhode island where we're at like 17 18 cents a kilowatt hour um where it's you know a high efficiency gas furnace is pretty comparable to a high efficiency heat pump you get a really high efficiency pump, it's slightly better, but you're paying a lot more for it. So it's, and, and of course, I'm, we're trying to take all of our projects all electric and ignore everything else. That's always a debate when it comes to cooking. Um, and so I, I do my best. I, what was fun was um, one of my clients not too long ago was my cousin and they were redoing their kitchen. And so I was, my cousin's husband, him and I went back and forth. Um, Probably 20 to 30 hours just talking about electric versus gas cooking. They ended up doing propane, um, but we went really deep into the science. And I actually learned a lot through this process. And he's a sort of a governmental researcher and does um, stuff for um, patent law. And so he he gets, he's already skeptical as a human being. And it, it was fun to, it was painstaking, but it was fun to debate with him on why it matters to do all of these things. And so I I really got to have a full out argument on electric versus gas cooking and why it really matters. And so we were able to get into the embodied carbon, the health and all of that. And I was able to learn a lot through that process and also learn enough that I realized that we don't know enough still about the the health impacts of that, um, of cooking food and burning food versus um, just the off gassing of the gas. We know it's bad. We don't really know how bad. Um, there's research being done now that's, um, there's a program called indoor chem that's looking and doing a lot of this research, but they're still at the tip of the iceberg for really understanding what this means for our human body. Yeah. So that it's, is it's fascinating. That about. is a
0: question that we we get fairly frequently. Um, it doesn't yeah. usually take me too long to get people off the the gas cooking wagon, especially as more chefs throughout the country are using induction. I'm really yeah. saying, you know, how, how they're super happy with induction. Um, and then, you know, you, reading all the outliers and everything like this is a super high performance house. So it's not as safe as it was for you to have a, a gas range in a super leaky house Um, in fact um, my husband and i bought an existing house about a year and a half ago and we have a gas range which by the way is terrible i've had gas in the past but this one's really bad i i keep telling my husband when the tank runs out of propane that'll be it and we'll get rid of the gas range of course we bought a house from the 70s that was um oddly enough all electric at some point in its life and (laughs)
1: Electric resistance, yeah,
0: and so so okay. in the 70s, in the ceiling
1: or baseboard. Um,
0: I believe it was all baseboard, but I don't know because mm-hmm. all we have left are the the controls. But the ceiling mm-hmm. is in sort of an odd condition that it's hard to tell if they took the ceiling down and took that stuff out. I, I didn't see it in the Same. attic because we, of course, I'm a hers raider too. Mm-hmm. I did a ton of energy auditing, so I've been in my attic, I've climbed around in there, and
1: I did that for almost once a week-ish when I was doing the consulting, um, partly because I was willing um, to crawl up into attics and crawl spaces. I found it fun, till there was one attic that it had about 20 inches of fiberglass and we were gonna air seal it, it wasn't air sealed. So we had to go through and get into all the top plates. I was so upset in that attic. I was cursing up a storm, just, I was very frustrated trying to get into the tight eave with the fiberglass there, rolling around in the Tyvek suit, it was hot out. It was just, it was awful. And I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore, but I appreciate understanding what that means and what it's like to go through that process of of retrofitting an attic.
0: I appreciate those people so much. And I yeah. think they should get paid so much more than they do. Agreed. Um, and I, I didn't do a lot of the uh, construction part myself, okay. but we were doing two audits a day for every day of the week for a long period of time. And then I transitioned into um, some multifamily housing and have been in attics all over multifamily housing projects in Austin, Texas and Los Angeles and whatever. And I believe I was in an attic in Austin, Texas in like May. And it was so hot in the attic. So when Kristoff talks about the heat and the humidity and everything else, I was like, yes everybody should be listening to it. And this housing authority project that we did, I was part of an en- energy engineering team there and we had mechanical engineers and their primary focus was dehumidification. That was what, what the biggest thing was that we were trying to do, you know, cause these places, they all have mold and moisture and all kinds of stuff. They've got so much ductwork through their attics and we could only be in the attic for like, Five minutes at a time because the heat level was so high in some of these spaces.
1: I've been in some really cool, funky attics. We did a lot of multifamily and um, a lot of municipal audits back when I was doing that side of things, and it was, it was some really cool stuff. A lot of places I was like, oh man, this could be haunted. This place is crazy. And um, it was a lot of fun. But a lot of attics where they had drop ceilings with just you know just your regular drop ceiling with just loose fill fiberglass on top. It was just like. There's no air control whatsoever. So all the the air in your building is just going straight up right through there into the attic. Guess what, your attic is bone dry. Congratulations. Um, but you, their energy bills are off the charts. It was just, ah. Retrofitting that's so expensive.
0: It is so expensive and so hard to change that. And it was the cheapest option for somebody to just go in and throw up that, you know, that dropped ceiling and always have access to whatever's above it. And it's like, yeah, I I get that, but
1: below your airtight ceiling,
0: right? Oh. Uh, I think everybody should have to go out and be an auditor for like a year or something. I learned, I, we were in so through. many cool spaces and yeah. so many cool, like you just learned how buildings were put together and different ways that people did things. And I'm really learning about all the failures too because usually if you're being called somewhere it's for one of two reasons something is a problem or it's costing them too much money to heat or cool it those are usually the two reasons why you're there somebody's interested or maybe
1: there's some type of incentive for them to do it yeah
0: incentive for them to 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 make an improvement and so one thing that
1: i found when doing audits and also talked to others about that i struggle with a little bit is some high-performance projects that were done, say, 15 years ago, but equipment has failed. Um, specifically, the ERV has not been working for the past five years, and the clients didn't know. There's no maintenance. There's no service side of things. And so they didn't have an ERV running for five years with a very tight building, and they've been sick because they haven't had proper airflow. And so it's it's a shame. And I have had discussions with, uh, I had, a. I was talking to this plumber and he was totally against air tightness and high performance. He's like, no, you know, the, the, the building needs to breathe kind of thing. And if, when he said that, I was like, all right, let's have this conversation. Let's discuss this. People need to breathe. Buildings don't. And he's like, yes, but when you build a really tight building and you put an ERV in and it fails five years down the road, And the person doesn't know any better and it's the second you know the person who had it before sold it now the second person isn't maintaining it and they don't know any better that is a legitimate problem and it's a legitimate concern now is the solution to make your home leak no (laughs) Um, it's
0: education everything always comes back to education.
1: education but it's also you know maybe there should be so, you know, the easy conversation is about a car. You know, you go have to go and get your car checked out every year, or every two years, depending on where you live, or maybe not at all, depending on where you live. <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea is you get it checked up and make sure it's running properly. And the same should happen for homes to make sure things are running smoothly. Um, and maybe that should be on the, I believe that it should be on the contractor's shoulders to do that, that they provide that as a service. And it's part of the hat that they wear, that they have to maintain their buildings after building it. I think it'd be really fascinating to see how that would change the industry when contractors could be responsible, so.
0: I don't know about um, general contractors, uh, mm-hmm. but definitely I think that A, it could be a great business for mechanical contractors. But when you move into a brand new house, and we're telling you a million things, you're not retaining all of it, you know? And so it's like, there needs to be a follow-up maybe like a month later and then maybe three months later. But then they also need to set up a contract because I think people, and not everyone does it, but they at least... Kind of understand that maybe they need to is that with oil boilers, a lot of people understand that they need to do maintenance, yeah. and the person that delivers their fuel oil usually comes and you know will do maintenance. Most of those companies sure. have a maintenance division that will come and do a clean tune and evaluate the system. A lot
1: of them don't do CAS testing, which bothers me. Yes, so that needs to happen too because our ours was not. So we were on fuel oil at both homes that I've owned, Um, but the one we're in Rhode Island, um, it was all fuel oil for hot water, domestic hot water, I was off the boiler. Um, So we we got rid of that, we're in mini splits, but we still haven't insulated the walls or replaced some of the terrible windows in our house. So our mini splits can't keep the comfort levels up to the right point that they should be in the winter, just because there's too much heat loss and too many cold surfaces. So the air temperature will get up to say, 70 or 72 but certain certain surfaces will be like 60 but the reason why we, we had to make the change when we did was because our flu wasn't drafting properly and it was mostly the swing seasons in the in the winter it it pulls just fine um, because you're running a lot more heat through it but in the swing season when you don't have as much temperature differential from down in the basement up to the up top where it's super hot from the flue gases coming up um, we would have our flue gases um, not necessarily a little bit of backdrafting, but more so the old flu was all the mortar and all the joints from the clay flue had all broken apart it's not also it's also not a straight flu so it took a bend so there was no way to retrofit it without ripping it apart and putting in a new flu and spending a couple grand to 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 redo the whole system and make it condensing so that you can have the flu go diagonally um it's just you know that's a problem so we were getting flu gases leaking up through our laundry chute right into our bedrooms and so
0: and you, you know, knew to the, check the, for the that the
1: fuel guy didn't know that i smelled it and i'm like oh we're smelling flu we're smelling the soot from the flu right now how is this getting here oh it's coming up through the laundry chute because it's backdrafting right by the thing coming up back through here and coming up right into our bedrooms it's like, I knew that because I get buildings. It took me a second to figure out what was going on. And so I, once we got rid of the mini splits, I capped off that flue, um, not necessarily the appropriate way, but it's definitely airtight. I used some zip liquid flash and a couple other things, um, but that, that one's sealed now. Um, and in certain scenarios, that smell was still there. So it was actually now backdrafting through the chimney flue, which is running next to it and then coming through the basement, back through the other flue, through the laundry chute, and then to our bedrooms. So it didn't happen as often, but that smell, which smelled like an ashtray, um, was still there. So I had to chap, cap that too. We don't use the fireplace to build fires in anymore. So,
0: um,
1: but they're both caps just temporarily and so I cap it correctly, but.
0: And this is, you know people like you and I, who, who know to search out for some of this, you know, yeah. because you've done CADS testing because you know, energy performance, because you know, air pressure differences, But think of all the homeowners out there and they don't, they don't know why they're smelling this. They don't know, like you said, they don't operate the ERV and they don't understand that them being sick all the time is somehow related to the indoor air quality of their house. And so, I fully agree that mechanical contractors, A, should know more about ventilation. I think um, I did a podcast with Allison Bales and he even talked about how, you know, people seem to know a lot about heating, air conditioning, but not a lot about right. ventilation. Yeah. yeah, well, I, I, not always a lot about air conditioning in some of our cooler states. Probably you're finding in Rhode Island, and we find some here in Maine. Um, in fact, in some of my building science classes, I don't even bother to teach air conditioning right now because they're going to run into it so infrequently. And sure. if they had put in heat pumps, it's going to be a byproduct that they're they just they're lucky and they get. And so, um, but we don't it really know.
1: bug me when they've got a, a gas furnace and then an air conditioner as well. It's like heat pumps already there. You just didn't pay a teeny bit more for the actual heat pump side of it. You're only making it go one way.
0: Right. I know. Yeah. So, so we find um, that ventilation is, uh, is really undervalued. Um, The ERVs, they don't do any training on. Um, In -hmm. fact, the only people who commission their systems are Zender, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to get, to get an ERV installer to do more than just balance it at the system is, is pretty difficult, which, so as a hers Raider, I'm going around with all of my different testing and I'm testing each port and trying to figure it out and, you know, go through all of that. But I use an installer fairly frequently. He does heat pumps and ventilation for me. And so I like that because he thinks about how those two things will interact with each other, you know, um, and he will come back. But I said, Hey, I think you need to add service contracts onto these. I feel like every homeowner would sign a service contract, you know, even if it was only for the first couple of whatever, and that then there is, you know, whenever you buy an appliance, you get a a appliance manual, there should be like house manuals that stay with the house like this. uh, These are all the systems. This is who you call. This is what you need to know. And we need to just educate, a little bit more. Um when we were doing multifamily housing, we did a lot of homeowner education, which, you know, yeah. is is all super dependent on whether or not they're interested, which hopefully people buying high performance houses will be more interested in the technology going forward and, and listen sure. to that because as building science changes, it is a major issue in some of these houses, like, yeah, we don't think houses should should breathe, but if your house needs proper ventilation and you have an ERV and you turn it off or it just doesn't work, that's-
1: scary, I mean, honestly.
0: Yeah, it is scary. That could be an even bigger issue than it breathing and you yeah. spending a lot to live in it or heat it, so. It's
1: tricky, it's tricky. It's funny to go from doing a lot of energy audits where you see ridiculous things all the time. Um, almost every project i'd be able to get a photo that i could use in a presentation of look how ridiculous this is um but now i'm trying to you know have the not the perfect projects but you know passive house level projects that have incredible mechanical systems that we're sizing every overhang appropriately we're doing energy modeling on it it's it's funny to go from the one side to the complete other side of the spectrum um, i still okay. get that sometimes with the deep energy retrofit but we're usually hopefully rethinking the whole project and sort of gutting it completely and and being able to almost start over from um, all the control layers and the the systems so
0: yeah. And that's always so hard too, because deep energy retrofits are great, but then what's the carbon impact yeah. of taking apart something that, you know, is was already here, how much is going to the landfill, how much is staying, but at the same time you need to be able to get to and access your control layers. And, yeah. and a- if you
1: tore it down and started <laughs> new, you theoretically could go negative in terms of the embodied carbon. So that could that potentially offset what you were wasting to begin with. A lot of times you hear the conversation, Oh, you got to re." preserve everything you've got. And I still think that's probably true, but a lot of times if you did it right, you can build carbon negative with all the structure and the insulation. So I I haven't seen that analysis um, in terms of actually doing it that way. Um, I've seen plenty of other analysis that make the numbers look like it's one thing when it could be another thing. Um, So we do a lot of funny things with numbers.
0: That's a great thing about science. You can show kind of whatever you want, right? Just yeah. If you only show one portion of it. Um, I know there are people working on carbon calculators. It'll be interesting if that will, um, will work for renovations as well, where you can kind of input things you have.
1: We'll be, we'll be doing a pilot study with um, new frameworks and Chris Magwood um, at the Endeavor Center for their new calculator. Um, our big project that we're doing right now um, will be one of their pilot studies for that.
0: Um, that's, that's super exciting. That's the
1: one where we're trying to do a, an 8,000 square foot, $5 million passive house. Um, so, crazy <laughs> projects, um, super fun, super interesting, um, but really high performance as well. We've got our nine and a half windows uh, and doors in that project. Um, but we're, we're really, the client's not totally on board from the carbon standpoint, but on board from almost every other standpoint. So that's sort of an interesting line we've got to play there. Um, but what's fascinating is the builder, the mechanical contractor, ourselves, we're all on board from the climate standpoint and the carbon emission standpoint. So we keep trying to find ways to be creative. Um, we're trying to analyze right now whether we do no slab in the foundation or whether we do the slab. We, we saved about 60% of the concrete in the walls um, by going precast. And we're planning on using ideal building systems, which does, they can do a lot more custom um, things with their panels than superior wall could. Um, But that way we can do, it's all just concrete and EPS foam for the panel system. Then we're framing out inside of that for additional insulation. But we need to resist the wall pressure from it buckling in. And without the slab in there, you don't have that resistance as much. Is it possible? Maybe it's going to take a lot of consulting and analysis, and frankly, time and money to figure out if we can do that. Which we're starting to look into, but the client's also happy with a concrete floor finish, so and almost prefers it. So, right now we're trying to figure out what are the carbon emissions between a concrete four-inch slab versus two layers of a three-quarter of advanced deck glued and screwed, which has embodied carbon in it, and then Schluter Dieter mat. Throughout, or mortar tile grout. So, all of the embodied carbon of that versus the embodied carbon of the slab, including the fact that we need to somehow provide resistance for the walls being pushed in. So, just like it's quite a thorough investigation to try to get into um, to make sure we're doing the right thing.
0: So, which is totally why you can't say like oh yeah we can just swap this for that like that's you know you yeah. have to take into account that yeah. adding all the extra materials and you know whether you're using eps underneath it or whether you're using Rockwell or what you know are these even this or that uh, yep. it's, it's so there's so many things I'm getting pricing
1: for foam glass as well instead of just eps versus rockwell let's actually put it in much lower embodied carbon material. I
0: think you said, um, "Modern Craftsman," that you're panelizing it too, right? Yep. So
1: the the whole the whole shell of the building is going to be um, built with a, a company called Holtz Room. Um They're a new startup in Philadelphia with a passive house builder and a passive house architect that started working with a company called Blueprint Robotics out of Baltimore. Very similar to Bensonwood and their Tectonics system. Um, we did get a quote from them too. They were just a little higher and. Uh, not nearly as close as room is right there. Um, so it made more sense for that project, but, um, it's cool. We're doing, it's a two by eight wall structure, um, zip on the interior, uh, 60 millimeter wood fiberboard styco on the outside. Um, so all breathable to the outside drawing capability, and then a two by three service cavity inside that. And so the zip is the primary air barrier. We are doing a, um, a SIGA, uh, uh, the the self-adhered product on the outside, the MABEZ. And so that's we've got sort of our outside um, air and water control layer, our interior uh, air and vapor control layer with the zip sheathing uh, to create our full wall, all dense packed with cellulose. And they can do a really good job in the factory all um, mobilizing everything. And they know how much cellulose they need in each cavity because it's calculated ahead of time. And so they just pump the correct amount in um, and then they achieved it all. So really cool. The client's been on board from that from the beginning. He was really excited about panelization. Right now, it looks like it's going to cost about hundred thousand dollars more. Um, there's still some things to iron out to figure out what that means, and the total is like a million for the, the whole shell mm-hmm. package for this project. Um, but I'm I don't know if that hundred thousand will pay for itself yet. So that's the interesting thing is we're, we're assuming there's some savings in certain areas. Um, what's really cool about it too, is we were able to get all FSC, um, all negative embodied carbon on the structure, the insulation and the exterior insulation. The only thing it's not is the um, zip sheeting, um, but the whole shell, the whole envelope will be negative embodied carbon, where it would be much more difficult to get that if it was stick built.
0: I mean, it always comes down to economics. There's always a budget, there's always some part that you have to meet, you know, this is a super high end custom home, that somebody was willing to try a bunch of different technologies for, I'm hoping that more people are going to get into this idea of panelization with like zero waste micro factories, like your factory is close to where your project is, it's in Pennsylvania. So you're not shipping it from, you know, New Hampshire, etc. And if they can have smaller factors, factories that, you know, cater to a much more local or centralized market, um, that's going to help with, with shipping costs, but the environmental offset of what you're doing by this panelization, in theory, if, if your client cares about those things um, is, is, is worth yeah. the dollars that you...
1: He doesn't not care, but he doesn't... It's not his primary objective. Not the big true hugger like I am,
0: so... We're moving towards raising the whole bar of the construction industry. Um, you know somebody mentioned the other day about panelization and the fact that it takes a little bit of the science out of the hands of people who maybe don't want to understand it at that level you know when it's when it's coming and it's being said on the site you know now you're thinking about what's the sill gasket and what's the you know what are the parts between each of these panels versus you know like what what's every air sealing detail what's you know what's my wrb etc and so maybe there's this move in the market that panelization can fill a part of the market that um, as we build higher performing houses might need to happen.
1: This analysis we were doing Atlas to Atlas, It wasn't just you know standard stick built to code. It was standard stick built to passive house. Similar details, similar performance, um, similar outcome and it still was a little bit more and this is on a high-end project. So we were already spending more on certain things to get a higher level of quality. I struggle with it because it I haven't found it to be more cost effective yet. But in terms of say the political environment changes and then there's a policy, say every house needs to be a passive house in a year from now. How is that going to be possible to educate everybody to get up to that level? Now I'm not saying that's gonna happen. I'm hopeful that'd be awesome, but panelization to me is the only thing that can start to make sense in terms of scalability of how do you do major retrofits and major new home production at passive house levels where you might not have the education and the skills from the architect or the the engineer or the builder if you get it panelized most of that's taken care of
0: i think the other thing that we that we you know fail to mention a lot too is there there aren't a lot of new people coming into the construction trades and we have a shortage and I, you know, I toured Benson Woods factory and I thought it was super cool. And, you know, you keep thinking if you, if you expose, you know, middle school or high school kids to some of this technology, they're also going to think it's super cool and it's a way to get into the built environment that isn't maybe swinging a hammer. I mean, it's some real precision stuff that's happening and stuff that they care yeah. about, you know. And the the you know middle school kids climate striking and saying it's like, hey, this is a way that you can have a real impact on that, and so maybe the conversation happens that. You know, maybe they don't want to be working outside in January putting siding on the side of the house. But, you know, it's totally fine to be.
1: Not as much fun as you may think.
0: <laughs> so, you know, like it, it could be a new way to garner interest in a construction industry that is, I, I don't know if it's that people don't want to do it because it seems labor intensive if they don't want to do it because it's, you know, it's not a licensed trade in a lot of places, you know, plumbing and electrical are licensed trades. So you see people who do go to trade schools, maybe going into more of the licensed trades fields. Um, You know, is there a way that we can get construction and carpentry and the building envelope shell to both A, raise the bar and be better because you know we we need to go there for climate change, um, but be interesting to the next generation of people who build, and at that point, will panelization and factory production of higher performance houses take off? And I like to see that they're. They're trying to they're trying to figure out different ways to do that. Is it that there's a custom house built in a factory that, you know, architects, we still get to design what we want. And builders still get to des- build super cool things. But then there's also things like their unity plant where, you know, they've got five designs and you pick an already like a pre-designed plan. Um, you can
1: customize it a bit. Yeah. Too.
0: So, so there's a lot of
1: versions of each model.
0: Exactly. So there's some, some cool things that I think are happening in the world of panelization that, I feel like we've been doing panelization for a long time and still hasn't caught on. And unfortunately, we've also been doing manufactured housing and it's gotten a bad name for a lot of different reasons. And so we have there's a lot to-
1: of energy auditing for manufactured housing, modular homes back in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of different manufacturing plants in Center, in Center County, Pennsylvania. So it, I've seen a lot of them on the factory floor. Um, it's, it's fascinating, but it's... Yeah, it gets a bad name, and there's a difference between sort of the the trailer park and the modular home um, that's built with just a bunch of big boxes. Now, I did struggle with just the the simple engineer mind going on, looking at it. Like you're shipping a lot of empty space in those boxes, and and you're also very limited in terms of design. Of not limited, they say they can build anything, but yeah, you can't do a 24 foot wide span because you can only fit the, you know, 11 or 14 foot to 16 foot width of a truck. Mm-hmm. Um, but panelized, now we're looking at just putting the boxes and pieces together, like you would build it on site anyways, on the floor, you know, on the deck, and then tilt them all up. You're just doing that in a plant now. And so I, I really do like the idea behind that. I think it just makes too much sense for it to not economically make sense in the future.
0: Yeah, and yeah. I think like any good thing, it has to be more expensive in the beginning as people sure. figure it out and as demand increases and their ability to do more things in the factory, you know, like, cause we've done everything from a panelized open wall cavity, which is basically studs with sheathing on it to, you know, like Benson Wood level like you said, has strapping and styco and an air barrier and a WRB and and insulation and the windows are already installed and they're taped and flashed in the shop. So you know that the tape is, you know, they've
1: perfect weather conditions and
0: de-dusted it. Perfect weather conditions. It's not too cold. It's actually stuck to it, you know, and they... There's
1: a guarantee behind it.
0: You know, everything within our house is manufactured except for the house itself. And so as More, they were probably all more expensive when they came out. You know, when people stopped hand building kitchens and started building them in a shop, it probably took them a little while to figure out how to make that cost effective. And then they they did the same thing. You know, manufactured housing. They they built some junk, and then they were like, Oh wait, no, that wasn't so good. Maybe we shouldn't do that, and come back. And so. I hope personally that that's, you know, moving forward so that we can take the contractors that we do have and not wear them out and really focus them on, you know, whether it's panelization or modular or or a trailer ship into the site or a tiny home.
1: Even a build smart method where it's a bunch of pre-designed components that you can rearrange in whatever form. I'm not sure I want to necessarily design that all the time, um, but I think... I think that's where the industry should be. Is if you had a bunch of pre-sized pieces that you could rearrange in different ways, as opposed to here's model A, B, or C, where you could almost have infinite models, just not infinite dimensions. Um, and so right. I think I think there's a lot of it makes a lot of sense to start thinking that way. Um, and so,
0: well, and to handle housing in the United yeah, States, I mean. Huge problem. Realistically speaking, not everybody can afford or should be looking to afford a fully custom, standalone, single-family residence. And um, so some of these passive house, low-income, or multifamily structures are worlds and worlds better than this junk that people are building in single-family homes. And it's like, man, they're living the life. or the
1: million-dollar apartments. Yeah. You know, or multi-million dollar apartments in New York City, the low-income housing is better quality in terms of health and performance and all of that than the multi-million dollar apartments, which I think is hysterical. Uh, and you know, it's it's fantastic, but it's also hysterical that it's just mm-hmm. you know, it's not thought of. Yeah, for so.
0: sure. So, so, but. I've always been pro panelization and it does come down to then getting the the contractors on site on board so that they then know how the components go together but i feel like that's a yeah. that's a slightly easier ask than understand all the building science behind how to make this high performance um and i also yeah. practice integrated design like i said i know enough to be dangerous about certain things and so i really like my team to be together from the beginning, which it sounds exactly like what you're doing on this project is the builders on board, the mechanical engineers on board, like you're all on board, you know what the, the critical and important information is. And those are the projects which hopefully will lead to change in the market where people will have service contracts and a book with the house and that will move away from or, or more and more people will have a ventilation strategy and realize that that's the new normal you know that's what you yeah. should come to expect in you know your house or your structure is that you have some kind of ventilation and you need to know how to use it and if you don't know how to use it here's this name or this person or whatever that says hey, this is who you should call so you know how to use it. Or, hey, this is the maintenance schedule we already have set up. Just call the name on, on just like there's a yeah. tag hanging off the boiler when you buy a house that has an oil boiler that hopefully somebody had service before you. is like there's a name and a phone number on that already just to call and continue exactly. to you know maintain the system.
1: I'm hoping our our big projects, the plan is to go all hydronic-based distribution, not radiant, um, but... Um, to get rid of all the refrigerant lines throughout the building. Yeah, that's
0: super exciting.
1: That's the plan. Um, And what's funny is the Christoph and myself were in the same room at a Passive House conference. And he already knew of this, of course. And I I knew a little bit about it, but didn't totally understand it at the Mm -hmm. time. And there was a presentation done by an engineer on how refrigerant leakage is actually the number one climate change problem in the United States. And it just you know, if you if you don't install your system correctly and say you have just mini splits in your home and you get, say your system leaks and all your refrigerant goes away, that's more embodied carbon than the entire operating costs of the entire year or five years potentially, depending on how much refrigerant you've got in your home. And the standard leakage rates are way higher than what is currently recorded because it's not recorded correctly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they sort of project that 5% of your system is leaking throughout time it's actually more like 10 percent and when you during installation and charging or recharging they assumed like some other number and it was actually double what they thought it was and so it's it's a big deal and so that that's where we're hoping to be able to attack that too in this project and choose the right system and what's nice is there's also other benefits it's not just uh, we're not doing VRF because of solely climate change. We're doing the hydronic-based system for climate change. There's other benefits as well. And so we're able to, that little bit of extra cost, like we can do a ground loop now where with the VRF, we'd have to go commercial um, with the equipment and we would need uh, three-phase power to the mm-hmm. site. So there's just, there's a bunch of other little things about that, but I'm excited from that it's all starting to come back together a little bit from thinking holistically about how it comes.
0: Yeah. And that's the same thing in any new technology is like, everyone's like heat pump, heat pump, heat pump. This is great. This is great. This is great. And is it better? Yes, it's better. Is it good? Maybe not. I mean, if you have a leak and that's more than an entire year's worth of embodied carbon, like that's not so
1: Exactly,
0: that's not so great. And then they talk about solar panels and it's like, yeah, it's not carbon free to produce a solar panel, but then they offset their carbon in it's a fairly short amount of time, so. I
1: think it's two months, um, depending on the manufacturer.
0: There is a, a deficit upon production, but once they go into installation, really quick payback. And I agree there's some question as to recycling of them at end of life.
1: We, we struggled. I had a client up here that they were, the son is working in Europe and doing um, building integrated photovoltaic systems on the roof. So the roofing was the solar array. And so that in Europe where he was, was actually just as cost effective as a metal standing seam roof. And so we tried and we could not find anybody um, in terms of a roofer in the state of Rhode Island or Connecticut or Massachusetts that could do it for a similar cost so they ended up just keeping the same um, the roof was leaking so they needed to replace it and so they did a standing seam roof and then they just clipped the panels on it but they had an existing solar array that was about 10 years old still had 20 years of easily a lot of life left and it I talked to about 15 different solar installers to get it removed and reinstalled because now the codes have changed and other things have changed. And we finally found an installer that was able to do it without just saying, well, we're gonna scrap this and do a whole new system. So it's important to think about, you know, if you're gonna put solar up, you need to make sure that you redo the roof before you do that so that it's gonna last the amount of time the panels are there.
0: Yeah, that was, we we have, when we bought this house, we knew we would have to redo the roof in five years. And, you know, it's so enticing right now to buy into solar with the 26% tax credit as so it's, you know, getting less and less and solar is going to get more and more expensive. But at the same time, it's like, no, we have to do the roof first. It doesn't matter how much it'll save us right now. If we have to take those off and we can't reinstall them, you know, in the next five years, like that's a total lose lose situation.
1: We did the same, we did it five years. Ago The incentives were at the highest point, I think they'd ever been in Rhode Island. So we're right now, we're not net metering, we're selling back to the grid. And we make 41.53 cents per kilowatt hour produced, and we're being charged about 17 or 18 cents per kilowatt hour being purchased. Then we also bought all green power um, with that too. It's funny is the the county I'm in, um, in Rhode Island, South uh the southern part of Rhode Island but anyway the town of South Kingstown is all 100% solar net metered solar I guess but they put in three large solar arrays in our area and that produces enough power to offset all the electricity needs for our place um, for our town so it's pretty cool now it gets much harder to do that when you get a lot more density once you get closer to Providence and go further up but know so we're we're producing power off of our roof most of that's going right back through the other meter into our house and then the stuff that's not is going back out and the power that's coming in is pretty much all solar as well so we're almost entirely solar powered here now from the fias um standpoint we still need to use the the larger number in terms of certification but the house i'm in is nowhere near fias was built in 61. and we said it's got terrible windows and the walls are maybe r11 maybe uh just for the installation when you include all the wood in it too it's more like r6 or something Uh, it's not good um but anyway so it's it's an interesting conversation we get into that i was just so my dad and i are always on the phone um talking back and forth with projects so we're we're at a project right now it's a vacation home that the clients probably are going to go there most weekends um or at least a lot of weekends and it's, it's on the ocean pretty much. And so we're debating, we've got to cut costs somewhere. The plan was a sand and water heater. However, the extra cost of that doesn't pay for itself at all if you just throw an extra panel up on the roof, mostly because they're not there enough. So now we're talking, does it make more sense to do just an electric tank water heater or a tankless electric water heater or um, a heat pump water heater? And so I ran some quick numbers this morning and it looks like it's almost a wash with a heat pump water heater in a standard tank and throw two more panels on the roof should cover that difference. So, you know, we'll we'll go with the heat pump water heater, but if you're, if you're living full time in your house, heat pump water heater is definitely the way to go. Um, but if it's a vacation home, it's close. It depends. So we're, we're trying to go as carbon neutral as we can on this project.
0: Especially in vacation homes that are potential rentals, you know, because the one thing about the heat pump hot water tank that you have to kind of keep in into account is like, if, if like here you have a utility room in your basement, like I don't ever really hear it run. But, you know, if you've gone away from the basement and you have a a single story house or whatever, and it's in the utility closet, you're going to hear it. and so. The And
1: the unit's outside that's making all the noise.
0: Right. So, so they're, they're really cool units and they're, um, the unit being outside also, it's not pulling the heat from inside the house.
1: So I had to make some assumptions when I read the numbers on how much it was how, how to replenish it.
0: How to replenish that heat. If you, if you have to, although if it's, a seasonal house and they're not really there in the winter time, then it's really not a big deal because it's not going to, it's not going to run all that often, you know, or if it runs on hybrid and it's not really warm enough in the space for it to get any heat out of the air, then it's going to run on electric anyway. So it's just, there's so many things to think about that are so exciting. And then you think about the technology and then you, you, you wait and things that we were doing, Um, 10 years ago, you're like, oh man, we don't do that anymore. 10
1: years ago, I did a lot of polyurethane sips and it's just extremely high embodied carbon. And, I want to pull my hair almost. I'd say in school, in grad school, we built several homes, um, through different school projects and through, um, personal projects. We we designed and built a home. It was supposed to be our flagship home. It's one of the main images on our website. We call it the gap because uh, it's got a view of the Delaware water gap looking due south. Um, and that was supposed to be sort of the perfect solar, um, passive solar, not not FIAS, not passive house um, at the time. But that was also before they split off. So my mentality was thinking that the German system was too expensive for this climate zone, which was true back then. But uh, but anyway, so that was all um, polyurethane sips throughout the entire the wall package. And then the roof was EPS, which is not as bad. But... It, still, it's like, oh my God, like what were we doing? And it's, just, and it's not even reducing thermal bridging that much. You know, you still have your top and bottom, we have a double top and bottom plate in each one that has no exterior insulation on it. And we thought that was fantastic. And it's,
0: uh, you thought you were doing this great thing?
1: It is net zero, or it's actually net positive because it's a vacation and we still own it. So um, it's fun to see it and it looks fantastic. It's architecturally gorgeous, but it's not perfect.
0: You go back and you think, oh, man, if I knew then what I know now, what I would have done different.
1: A ground source e-pump we installed that we got the 30% rebate. Even with that, it was over a 200-year payback because we let the temperature fluctuate with the sun. And we're also not there as often. And when it gets real cold, we've got a bunch of logs that were cut down. We we took all the trees that were above 20 inches in diameter and got it milled to be the flooring of the house, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was really cool. But the all the stuff that was smaller we cut it all up and we've been using it solely over time to, to use a high efficiency wood stove in that project um, and so the ground source heat pump doesn't turn on that much we also had a D super heater attached to it that doesn't really do anything for us because we're not having that much waste heat off of that unit to be able to dump in the hot water tank so mm-hmm. you know it's just straight up electric resistance water tank at this point because we're not getting the benefits that we thought we would because wasn't thinking about it completely at the time. And I was young. I just, I was doing my master's at the time. And so I thought I knew everything and of course needed to learn a whole lot more. Um, but still, still ended up being a great project, but more a great learning experience than anything. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And I think that's the best thing that we can do is learn from each project. I know I learned something on each project and hopefully it's something good like, Oh, that was great. This was, this was worked really well or it was easy to build or this was a great product or it was easy to get or something. But, you know, on all of them, we have also learned things where you're like, yeah, wow, wouldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't do that again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The the consulting days was the really the big one for me because we were, the our, our consulting team was mostly a bunch of recent graduate students and uh, some undergrads that had just graduated, and that was our team for the most part. We had a couple people that had been doing it a couple years, but nobody like building science corporation that has been doing it for 20 years that really understands the ins and outs. And so mm-hmm. we were we were making up a lot of things because we didn't know any better, and it, we we still made drastic improvements. A lot of projects, we were able to reduce their energy consumption by 50%, and so huge savings. But some of our recommendations may not have been, definitely not what I recommend now. So it, it's interesting to think about.
0: Do you have any um, recommendations for, you know, people out there a great book you've read?
1: Sure. Yeah, the, I don't read as much as I should, and I never enjoyed it as a kid. Um, and it wasn't until I became passionate about things. But the new Carbon Architecture book is, is a really great one, and it's eye-opening. Um, by Bruce King. And I'm sure most of the people on your podcast might be already familiar with that um, that are listening, but it's, it's a good book. In terms of videos and things that I listen to more, so there's plenty of great podcasts out there like yourselves. One of my favorites is Positive Energies podcast, um, Building Science podcast. They just really get me to think differently of, with almost every podcast I listen to. Um, Christoph does such a good job in terms of diving deep into that Um, but Matt Reisinger is even a great source for most builders just to start doing things better. Um, You know, he's not talking about embodied carbon yet, but um, it, it is a good source. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. And I think it's a lot of the younger generation of people that I've talked to, whether it was a contractor or a client, some people have heard of him and know who he is. And it's a good starting point in terms of me as the building science consultant or the architect, well, or the designer, I should say, um, to be able to have that conversation. Oh, you know Matt Reisinger. Let's let's talk about some of his videos, and now let's talk about how we can go beyond that. And it's been a great conversation starter. Um, but anyway, the, there's building science and beer has been has been fun to listen to, but it's it's been a lot of fun. And if you're in the Northeast. Uh, the uh, northeastern sustainable energy association nessie has been a fantastic conference once i moved up to rhode island um steve Demetric, who's a builder in rhode island um, we're finally doing our first project together where i am designing it um that's exciting i've been a consultant for him i've uh helped manage one of his jobs when i didn't have enough work early on now i've got plenty of work i've got more than we could handle so we've got to start thinking about how we're going to deal with that but it's it, Nessie has been a great conference where I've learned a lot more um, and learned a lot more of these resources, especially about embodied carbon and taking things to the next level and thinking broader about architecture. Yeah, I enjoy the deep dive, but it, I have to, I've learned a little bit over the years, but I still have a lot of learning to do to restrain myself from that deep dive because i that's what I geek about. And that's the normal sales strategies I don't get or understand, it doesn't work on me. I wanna know truth and science and facts and numbers to be able to make my decisions. So the deep dive is a lot of fun. And the more I've been on Instagram and um, doing podcasts like this, the more people have come to us for that deep dive and really looking at energy and uh, comfort and health and Passive House more so than just, hey, we just need an architect and I like the way your projects looked. Um, that's still fun, that's still great, and we'll accept clients like that a lot of the time. But to be able to do modern, sexy, and, and passive house all in one combination, that, that's the dream project. And luckily, we've got a couple of projects that are sort of like that right now. Um, and it took a while to get there. Um, and maybe we won't be this lucky in the future to get all, you know, multiple good projects all at once, um, but you know, I'll, I'll keep open.
0: Yeah. And I think doing things like this is just, you know, getting it out there, getting the word out there saying, Hey, we think about this differently. And you know, that's, what's gonna, gonna draw people in. So um, I appreciate you taking the time today. I know you've got two lovely children at home. I think they're
1: watching a show right now. We've been doing our best not to just put them in front of a screen and walk away. Um, But sometimes, you know, my wife had a meeting at the same time I did. So we're trying to do our best with them.
0: Occasionally, that's what you got to do. So, um, so I appreciate you coming on today and spending some time talking with me. Kyle and I both went to Penn State for architecture school, uh, not at the same time, but it was fun after the podcast to reminisce a little bit about the show and the school that we went to and people that we both know, both teachers and students at the time. So I will add Kyle's contact information to the show notes so you can get in contact with him if you'd like more information from Kyle. If you're enjoying the show, like and share, or feel free to send me an email, emilyatmottramarch.com. Until next week, stay nerdy.